Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Today's show is about the mystical journey to the here and now. And one thing about mysticism and flights of the soul or whatever we're calling them is that the real world seems to keep getting in the way. Whether the path is to meditation, nature walks, soothing music, the, the wonders of modern science or anything else, after one encounters these shining lights of another world, we always seem to return to this world. In these spiritual moments, we find a connection to the world. We, f we realize we are part of it. But then we return again and again to the world of the many, the world of differences, the world of solid matter, physical stuff, stresses, grinds, grocery store trips, emptying the dishwasher, college tuitions, and so on and so forth. I've come to the conclusion and this is probably just me, that mysticism can be explained as trying to answer the question of what does it mean to say that we are one. S songwriters speak of, of uh, us being one family, the famous Michael Jackson song, We Are the World from the 80s. Western religions, as we know, happen to believe in one God. To the Eastern folks, Brahman is the one mind. And science itself talks about a quantum field and as far as I can tell, there's only one quantum field, which means we are one on the quantum level as well. But at the height of the mystical experience, there is this sense that the one is, is also connected to what is real. That there is no separation between us and the world, between mine and other people. So we're going to be probing this topic about the spiritual world, the the mystical in the real world on today's show with my guest Paul Rademacher who has a lot to say about his his own hitchhiking tour through the spiritual universe now Paul is the founding editor of Inner Story magazine a digital publication that explores the spiritual life through the vehicle of personal story from 2007 to 2011, he was the executive director of the Monroe Institute in Faber, Virginia. And we'll be talking about that a little bit, but the Monroe Institute is known for its pioneering work in the exploration of human consciousness. He also served for 15 years as a, as a Presbyterian pastor, where he studied extensively in the fields of consciousness and spirituality where he sought to bring together traditional meditation techniques with contemporary expressions of spiritual exploration. And, and rounding out our guest today, he's also a former building contractor, designer, and journeyman carpenter. He, his book, A Spiritual Hitchhiker's Guide to Universe, Travel Tips, 
for the Spiritually Perplexed was published in 2009. Paul, welcome to the show. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Thank you, Philip. So great to be with you today. Well, I I was intrigued by your story, and and you know I I try to um, ask guests to be on the show whose work I'm interested in. I think it makes for a better conversation, more interesting show. And I was intrigued by your book, which we're going to be talking a lot about. Uh, and that book, as I mentioned, is a spiritual hitchhiker's guide to the universe. But it seems as if everyone in this field, and this is the field of the open-minded, of the of the of the spiritually um, uh, open-minded, everybody seems to have a trigger. Something happened to them in their life that set them going down a different path. And I like you to talk about what your trigger was, because you've you've been on your own journey. We're going to talk about it, but what was the trigger that that led to where you're at today? Uh, you know, that's that's a that's a great question, and I, I think uh, it, it, on w- at one level, I think that I've always sort of had a propensity for an interest in this area, but never uh, exactly knew how to approach it. But um, there were several triggers. Uh, the first trigger happened when I was in my early 20s, and I decided it would be a, a really good idea to hitchhike across the country by myself because um, at that time in my life I had this sort of philosophy that said if something scared me I should probably do it. And so uh, hitchhiking seemed like something that would really scare me because you never know you know, who's going to pick you up, where you're going to end up, and what condition you're going to be in when you get there. And so uh, it was a revelatory thing for me because um, it was probably the first time in my life that I, I completely threw caution to the wind, you know, with no sense of the outcome. And, um, and to, to make a very long story short, uh, I, at one point in that journey, I, I was a kid from western Pennsylvania, and I'd never been to California before, so... I found myself in Big Sur, California, and um, I didn't realize that in that part of the country, when the sun starts to set, it gets very cold very fast, and so here I was on the side of the road with uh, uh, no visible means of support, no idea where I was going to end up, and not being dressed for the weather, and uh, so I found that I, in that moment, I kind of got what I had come for. I was scared. I didn't know what was going to happen, and then all of a sudden, I'm standing in these amid these redwoods that are just soaring up into the sky, and the, and the sunlight is coming, filtering down through the, the leaves at a sort of a 45-degree angle. And all at once, I, I felt myself sort of dump into this other awareness that I'd never experienced before. And, you know, mystics and uh, gurus will, will talk about this sense of unity or oneness with creation. And that happened to me in that moment, the, the dividing lines between who I was as a person and the external environment began to fade away. And uh, in that moment of extreme vulnerability, uh, one of the most incredible paradoxes happened. I felt this uh, sense of safety, complete and utter safety, like I had never experienced it before. And that was a really uh, a tremendously powerful uh, uh, event for me because it told me 
that the usual way I experience the world is not the only way to do it, that there is another uh, awareness, another sensibility that we can bring to this or that can sort of come upon us uh, unawares. And um, that that showed me that this world is full of uh, mystical wonder that that I just had, had not experienced before or even noticed. And so that kind of piqued my curiosity about w- what was possible from this perspective of human consciousness. So that was the the, the first big thing. Yeah, yeah, I know, um, I know that, I know that. Um, I want to talk about your 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 fall in the construction site as well. But you, but there's something I think that needs to be noted, uh, Paul, about what you're talking about is, and that is hitchhiking itself is something that I don't know if it's done anymore. I think that you'd probably get pulled off the road or, or taken off the road by the police. I mean, I, I myself hitchhiked when I was younger, and I, it's something that I would not let my daughter do. And it's just, and I don't know right. what, what, it, what it says about our world. I, I don't think it's a good thing, um, what it says about fear and about danger and about um, just, just the, uh, you know, the state of protectiveness, defensiveness. Uh, we might be in, but I think that it's obviously the world has to be pretty a pretty trusting place to to hitchhike, uh, and I I regret. I mean, it seems like right now the only time you see it is on the movies. But the other thing that you said, I think, that needs to be underscored here is that you know we build models of reality and. There is generally a scientific model, and there's all sorts of, re- of religious models, which we'll talk a little bit about. But, you know, the model of science is that we are separate creatures, that, we're, that we are, you know, not connected to the world, that there is no spirit essence. If there is, it's a fantasy. But it seems it's that again and again, when we are in these moments of need, or alone, when, when we're sort of at, at, in, in despair, the darkness, things happen. And, and mm-hmm. it, it happens again and again. And to me, it just shows that, that there is a broader world out there. And, and I think it's, you know, your story is, uh, is very well uh, told. And it's just another example of, of realizing that there is sort of this broader storyline out there okay so I interrupted you you were you were going to talk about another one of these triggering moments you had and why don't you why don't you talk about the about about another one sure um, uh, probably about uh, I'm going to say maybe seven years after I had that experience of hitchhiking my brother and I had a construction company and we were building a house, so fun, and I was working up on the roof of the house and pulling on a board to try and wedge something over into place, and all of a sudden the board gave way. And I was careening off of the roof, and I fell off. I didn't have any uh, chance to adjust to the fall at all, and I landed on a, on a pile of gravel, and there was this extraordinary pain in my left hip and we had a crane there that was lifting stuff up to the roof and I just missed the base of the crane with my head by about six inches um, rolled over and uh, all I could feel was just this overwhelming throbbing pain and it didn't even want to get up so they called the ambulance took me to the hospital and uh, did some x-rays and they didn't find anything wrong with the hip 
And so they put me into physical therapy. Uh, and, but I didn't know it, and the doctor didn't know it at the time that there, it was actually a fracture in that hip. And so, you know, if you're in physical therapy and you've got a fractured hip, that is, that's just really agonizing. Yeah. So the doctor saw I was having trouble, and he said, you know, you don't look like you're doing too well. We need to take some more uh, x-rays of that hip. And they did, and that's when they found the fracture. Took me out of physical therapy and put me into traction. And when the doctor came to tell me about the uh, the fact that I was going to be off work for about six weeks or more and um, that, that there was a fracture there, I, I just went into this spiral downward of pain and anxiety because the hip was excruciating, but also tremendous anxiety because this was the busiest part time of our construction year. And I knew that my brother couldn't possibly get uh, by without my uh, assistance to, to run the company. And so I, I, it was just this incredible feeling of despair, and I think you, you mentioned how those moments of trauma and despair can also uh, push us over and over the edge into another kind of experience. So I could almost literally feel myself spiraling downward, and all of a sudden it felt like I kind of hit something and then broke through. Yeah. And to this day, I don't even know what it is that I broke through into. <laughs> I can just give you kind of the... The, the sense that that, uh, that I had at the time it was not this physical world, but it was a, it was an alternate reality and in that other other dimension uh, there was no such thing as pain there was no such thing as anxiety that completely both of those completely dissipated and I was surrounded by total complete peace I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that there were no such things as accidents including this apparent accident of falling off the roof. And at, at one point, I uh, found myself standing in front of a being of light, and we were conversing about my life, but we uh, were doing it telepathically. Uh, and so when I came out of that experience, it was so stunning to me because it was the first time I'd had any um, sense that there was another reality other than, than this physical one, but it also sent me on this journey that... that uh, um, would ultimately uh, send me into seminary and, and into the Presbyterian ministry, uh, but it was it was it was something that just never let go of me because the, this other reality was so pristine, so full of wonder that I, I had to find a way to uh, learn more about it, to access it, to become make it more a more consistent part of my life, and that was really what launched me onto the journey from the rest of my life. Yeah, you know there there's something that I talk a little bit about in the show and. It's clearly uh, explained by Ken Wilber in his Integral Model, and Ken Wilber is a modern, a modern philosopher, psychologist who really probes these spiritual experiences. But one of the things that he talks about that I really agree with is he talks about these stages of consciousness that when you reach a higher stage of consciousness, and let let me let me try to make this as down to earth as, pos as possible. Let's say, let's say that um, you have an experience like you did, where, at, or or an out of body experience, for example, or you simply have this moment where you realize a connection with nature. When you have those kinds of experiences, it, you can't go back. You can't go back and forget about it and pretend as if it wasn't real, and. It's sort of like um, when when you when you uh, reach a certain maturity, unless you have one heck of a weird illness, you can't sort of 
go back and forget all the experiences that you had. And I think this is something that continues to come through uh, in, in talking to, it, to, to you, to people like you and so many other people, including me, that have had these experiences where your mind is opened and you can't sort of shut it back down. Uh, and I'm just wondering right. whether 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 you whether you agree with that or, or whether that has been a a feature of some of the things that you've experienced. Well, you know that that's a, a there's there's uh, a complexity to that question that you're asking that I wouldn't have known up until uh, about three weeks ago. But we can get into that later in in the conversation. Uh, I think it, it is true as long as as uh, experience is present to you and it, through through memory or whatever means, it is very difficult to uh, uh, to unremember something. Right. But it's also uh, there's I think there's also a sense of uh, something grabbing a person uh, that it's it's larger than the memory. It's uh, it's as if. Um, I'm just going to throw this out. It, it, it's as if we have a future self that is sort of drawing it, us toward itself. And that future self is is deeply embedded, not just in the physical world, but also deeply embedded in this uh, awareness of that which go, it includes and goes, goes beyond the physical world. And so I think it's two things. In a sense, it's being put, we're being pushed by the memory, and I also think that we're being pulled by some sort of destiny as well. And, and those two uh, arrows and, and uh, magnets, if you will, are, are what sort of lead us on this path of, of life. Yeah, I think that, that's, that's, re- that's very well put. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Paul Rademacher, the author of A Spiritual Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe and the publisher of the new uh, e-magazine, uh, Inner Story. We're talking about uh, Paul's journey from the construction business to the ministry to the Monroe Institute and sort of beyond that. And we're, we're, making, we're going step by step here, but this is, this is a unique and compelling story now, now, Paul, at, at this juncture, you had this experience uh, that can only be called a spiritual experience, a mystical experience, where you, you all of a sudden realize that there was more than meets the eye. And it, it was, at, was at this point that you decided to change careers? Yeah, well, before I uh, fell off of the roof, I had had this sense of calling into the ministry, and that's right. that's a whole another story. Um, and then after the uh, after that experience, I had a sense that this was a really um, this was a way in which that sense of calling was answered in a very profound way. But I have to say that at that time, the only language I had for it was religious language. I just didn't know that there was any way of other way of expressing these things and so uh the calling was in a sense uh, part of that religious language but there was something deeper and even more powerful than that that it, that i think took me many many years to begin to unpack but in the meantime that during that period of unpacking it was this uh 
journey into the the world of religion. And so, after I had fell off the roof and I had that experience, uh, I I enrolled in um, seminary. I went to Princeton Theological Seminary for three years and uh, earned a Master of Divinity degree, and then started 15 years of uh, work in in the pres- as a Presbyterian pastor. And during that time, I should say before that, that before I went to seminary, I had a, a wife and, and two children at the time. So, and it, the, our little family packed off and packed up, and we went off to ministry and into seminary and then to ministry. But there was always this undercurrent of this longing, and then that's probably the best word I can use for it, is this longing to, to rediscover this thing that I had come in contact but really had no idea where to look for it. Yeah, the the one thing that that is really noticeable about your story that again I want to highlight this for the listener is that in our modern culture when we we tend in my opinion we tend to put thing in things into categories we tend to have certain preconceptions of things and when you had this experience the spiritual experience or whatever we're going to call it you you put it into language of of the religion that you knew. You put it right. into the into the boxes that you knew. And one of the right. things that that I I try to do, and I think this this also illuminates some of the things that I got a, got out of your book, is that all these all these got all these the great founders of the world's religions they had the spiritual experience first. And then they wrote about it. They didn't. It, it didn't start. I mean, Jesus Christ didn't sit down and say, "I hereby explain the entire spiritual world for you." I mean, it it was the spiritual experience came first, and we have different people through history trying to put it into words. And right. and so, so this is something that I I want to emphasize because I think it's also a commentary on our modern age, on our, on our modern age. So so you you went into the ministry. And some people may not know what Presbyterianism is. What 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 is the feature of Presbyterianism that separates it from other other um, forms of Christianity? Oh, um, you know, people used to say that it was a belief in predestination, and I'm sure there are other nuances. Um, you know that you could get into a whole history of yeah. the various uh, development denominations, etc. I don't know that that's. I, I don't know that there's anything other, particularly distinctive about uh, Presbyterianism. Mm. Uh, it all depends on what you want to distinguish it from, and then yeah. you can get into the nuances. Yeah. Okay. Um, it yeah. was just. It was just something that I was brought up in, and and again, I think it was the only language that I really knew at that time. Yeah, and I think that that I think that is, uh, really really uh, relevant, and 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 insightful that you put it into the language of the religion that you knew. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your experience as a minister and how you try to broaden uh, the scope of the conversation, the mm. scope of the inquiry yeah. for your congregations. Well, I was, I was fortunate that uh, I, uh, especially uh, the, my second congregation was a, was a fairly, was a very open and, and group of people, and uh, they tended more toward the liberal end of the scale, though we had other people who were also part of the conservative um, part of the scale. 
but for me, uh, I it was such a struggle to to bring meaningful language to uh, to the experience that I had and, and put it in the context of the religion that I found myself in. Um, and most of the time, I found that I couldn't do that because the language just wasn't adequate. There weren't a lot of people in the Presbyterian tradition at that time who were talking about mystical experience or even that was even on their radar screen. So I found myself having to go outside of the tradition on in many, many different ways. I, I continually found myself in the New Age uh, aisle of bookstores, etc. Yeah. Uh, I'd go off to conferences and seminars that I didn't dare tell anybody about because it was it was just too wild for most people. Mm-hmm. But a couple of years into the ministry, I, uh, my wife and I were up in Toronto, Canada. We walked into a, a bookstore there that's still there, I think. It's called The World's Biggest Bookstore thousands and thousands of books everywhere, and I was in there for about two minutes, and all of a sudden one book just jumped off the shelf at me, and it was Robert Monroe's second book called Far Journeys, and, and in that he was talking about his experience in um, pursuing this thing that he called out-of-body experience, and I saw so many parallels between the experiences that I had had and the things that he were, was writing about. I couldn't, I just couldn't put the book down read it cover to cover and got to the um, end of it, and I found out that there was a place called the Monroe Institute where you could actually go to study and experience these kinds of things that he was talking about. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that would be the most amazing place to possibly ever exist. And right after that was uh, the thought, wouldn't it be amazing to work at a place like that? And I, I knew, of course, that, a, number one, I could never get there because I didn't have either the time or the money. And B, that, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor. There's no way I could possibly ever work there. But about uh, 11 years after that, somebody actually paid my way to go to the Institute. And, and when I did, uh, that world that I experienced when I fell off the roof opened up in living Technicolor. It was just the most unbelievable thing. And so uh, I actually uh, was so taken with that that I started to do some, use some of the Monroe audio programs with a very select group of people in my church, and it began to open up worlds for them as well. And I thought, well, this is a really important work. So in uh, the year 2000, I, I left the church Why? because I wanted to write about this uh, type of thing. And then uh, two months after I walked out of the door of the church, I got a call from the Monroe Institute asking me if I wanted to become a facilitator there, which I started to do at that time. So let's, let's draw a connection. There's, there's two connections to draw here. First of all, did you, do you think that the Monroe Institute and what they, what they teach and what they, what they demonstrate has a connection to what we know as organized religion? Is there a, no? What? What? No. Okay, go ahead. In fact, in fact, they're very adamant about uh, it not being dogmatic. Um, there's the emphasis is on the experience. Right. So uh, what the institute tries to do is to is simply to create the context in which people can follow their own experience, and then uh, they can then use whatever language they want to put to that. So there's a lot of emphasis on trying to not front load people in terms of what their expectations are going to be before the before uh, any experience is given, and so I think there's a lot of integrity, but it also makes it accessible to a very very broad range of people. 
Did did your experience at the Monroe Institute help um, illuminate your understanding of of the Bible, of experiences in the Bible? Uh, I think I had had suspicions uh, before the institute. Um, you you touched on it in a comment before that you know you, these various people who we hold up as sort of paragons of of um, the way things should be. Often they they all that's happened to them is they've just been dumped into experiences that they um, weren't expecting. And right. so they, they try the best that they can to integrate that. You know, you you, you think of Moses in the burning bush or, um, you know, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and the disciples being with them, and Paul on the road to Damascus. All of these are, are first and foremost, uh, mystical experiences that then language gets added to later on. And, and usually that language is by people who haven't had the direct experience themselves. And so they just try to put words around it, and they think that the words are what really matter. And and I think this is true of virtually all of religions, is you've got these people who have had the experience, and then the followers who haven't necessarily had the experience then try to put that into words. And then the dogma gets built up and the the, uh, uh, protocols, etc., but uh, never realizing that it's the experience that's the foundational element. And that's what the Monroe Institute does, is to, is to get people back to that founding experience. Yeah, and if there's one thing that is, I think, in development right now with the increasing interest in, I'm going to call it the new spirituality, is that people are starting to appreciate experience their own connections to the to the divine or to the spiritual world we're starting to see people who want to who want to put in their own words who who don't want to just sort of memorize someone else's experience i had a guest on a couple weeks ago linda ferguson who put it very clearly uh, in, in, in her book, and I'm not going to put it as clearly as she did, but it was something like, you know, Benjamin Franklin uh, invented electricity. Well, we don't put a poster of Benjamin Franklin up and honor Benjamin Franklin. We use electricity. And, and, the, and we, we see too much of, in my opinion, this is, I'm radical on this, but I think we see too much of people sort of honoring, worshiping the messenger instead of heeding the words of the messenger and and so it's sort of it's sort of something that is is coming out right now when people start thinking for themselves and also when you have these experiences like like you did this is philip camella this is conversations beyond science and religion i'm speaking with paul Rademacher the author of A Spiritual Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, and we're talking about uh, how Paul went from being a construction worker to a minister. Then you were with the Monroe Institute for a number of years. And the now, with regard to uh, Robert Monroe, have you yourself had an out-of-body experience? Uh it's always difficult for me to answer because you know there there's a 
people have this sense, uh, this sort of classical sense of what an out-of-body experience is, and, and very often it's Robert Monroe that has sort of painted that picture for yeah. us. Uh, but what people don't realize is that even Robert Monroe, as he continued his exploration, began to realize it's, it's really more of a continuum. Uh, there are times when we are more directly uh, in sync with our physical being, and there are times when we are less in sync with our physical being. And so there can be a range of different experiences from being totally, clearly present in this moment. You're very much aware that you're in the physical body to daydreaming, to uh, meditational states, to getting on deeper into um, yeah, uh, near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, and then, of course, the complete uh, uh, dissolution of the connection of the physical body is, is physical death. So uh, along that, uh, that continuum, you have lots of dis- different destination points. Um, uh, I think that, w- for instance, when I fell off the roof and I found myself in a, a completely different environment, I think you could say that that was a, an out-of-body experience. And I've, and I've, I've touched into them from uh, time to time, but that, oddly enough, even though I was at the Monroe Institute, it wasn't the out-of-body experience necessarily that was the driving force for me. It was more the exploration of consciousness, and that can, that can take many, many different forms. One of the things that really struck me when you were giving your accounts of the some of these um, journeys, these these journeys into consciousness uh, at the Monroe Institute was when you met up in, in, let me call it, in the dream state, when you met up with somebody else who was participating in the session. And I think I'd like to have you talk about that because I thought that was an amazing, uh, amazing story. So, so because... Amazing to me too. I yeah, yeah. For people for sure. who haven't, I mean, we all, we, many of us have. Let me put it this way: everybody's, everybody has dreamed, everybody has daydreamed. A lot of people have hallucinated. I mean, I, I say that the most simplest form of hallucination is when you see stars after a sneeze. I mean, to me, that mm. is, that is the mm-hmm. simplest possible, basic, rudimentary hallucination. So many people have imagined seeing things but this is a little deeper dive into into the levels of consciousness so why don't you why don't you tell us about one of these experiences where you where you actually met up with somebody else and what and what this and what your interpretation of this whole thing is i thought that was really interesting okay so um at the mineral institute there are different destination points that they're called focus levels, and, and I won't go into what the distinctions are between them, but one of those focus levels, and, and the Institute, just they just give them a, a number, so it will be as, have as little um, uh, impact the person, as little, as little front-loading as possible. So uh, focus 21, the first time we went there, and they use the audio technology to help you to move into these various states of awareness. At one point, I found myself suddenly flying over this city, and uh, it seemed like it was nighttime. And, but the buildings were, were uh, glowing as if the very material of the buildings themselves were alive and, and in this incredibly beautiful iridescence. So uh, I uh, 
was so stunned by this. I, I found myself running around in in this through the city because I just wanted to see everything that I possibly could. And so, uh, as I was doing that, I, I at one point I entered into this sort of auditorium place, and and it was filled with these beings. And they were sort of uh, humanoid looking, and they but they were glowing. And they were people of of light, as if they were made up of light. And uh, I go into the, this place, and there's a woman uh, who looks like me, who's not one of them, and, but I don't really pay her any attention because I'm really interested in what's going on. One of the beings of light comes up to me and says, oh, welcome, we've been expecting you. And I said, well, what do you mean you've been expecting me? Oh, they said, well, wh- what you're doing is very important to us. And I said, you must have the wrong guy because hmm. nothing I'm doing is important. Um, and anyway, to, and then to make a long story short, I... Uh, after the experience, we, we come back together as a group, right? And, and we talk about, if we want to, what has happened. And the first woman raised her hand and she said, you know, I went to this city of light. And, and she described a lot of these things that, that I experienced myself. And I thought, oh, my gosh, did everybody have the same experience? And so I waited and nobody else mentioned it. And so finally, I, I raised my hand and I said, you know, I went to the City of Light, too, and the woman who first talked about this was sitting across the room from me, and she looked straight at me and she says, yes, I know, I saw you there. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God. Yeah. What, well, you know, this was just so stunning to me. Yeah. And so uh, w- we talk about it a little bit more, and then it's time to go into the next experience. And so uh, there was another woman in the group who was kind of kidding me as we're going up. She says, oh, I want to go there, too. And I said, okay, I'll take you. I don't know why I said that. I, why I even said that. I didn't have any idea how I would take her. And to be honest, I even completely forgot about it once we got into the experience. And then, uh, to my utter surprise, all of a sudden she showed up in the experience, uh, right in front of me. I said, oh, that's right. I was supposed to take you to the City of Light. And so I I grabbed her hand out of the body, and we soared up into the sky. And next thing I know, we're floating over this City of Light. And I said, okay, you're here. Um, You you go go do what you're going to do. I'm busy. I want to explore for myself. And that was the last we saw each other. And then after after that experience, we came out of our separate rooms and we're walking down toward the group. And I said, I took you to the City of Light, didn't I? She said, yes, I know. And you practically tore my arm off. Yeah, that's an an amazing story. What what, what does this tell you, uh, Paul? I mean, what what conclusions, if any, do you draw from, from something like that, where you're joining up in a vision, in a in a dream, whatever we're calling it, uh, with 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 another person, what what does what conclusions did, did you draw out of that? Well, one of the I think one of the problems that you run into with this kind of work is the mind always wants to pass it over and and to rationalize and yeah. say it's just a dream. You always put that word. It's just my imagination. Or it's just a dream. Whatever. Right. But when you start having experiences that uh, are paralleled by other people and they can corroborate uh, your experience, that now you're you know, now you're confronted with something different. You know, this is not just the imagination. This is something that, well, at a minimum, it's a shared delusion. <laughs> but I happen to think it's much more than that. Um, but what it tells me is that we have the capacity to perceive at many different levels of experience that are not simply only related to the physical dimension. 
So, uh, so we have that capacity, and that capacity also says that there are many different dimensions to experience. So uh, the, the potential for perception is much broader than we have been led to believe in our, in our culture. In our Western culture, we've limited pretty much to the physical world as being the only reality. But these kinds of things have convinced me that there's much more available to us. Yeah, I had this conversation last, I think it was last, no, I think it was two weeks ago, with uh, Hillary Jamron. Uh, who uh, basically died and came back to life, and, uh, and you know, in so many words, and we we got into this discussion about reality and illusion and all that, which which I happen to think is really fascinating. And for those who think that this is just some kind of you know uh, esoteric topic, Hollywood makes movies about this, such as the movie Inception uh, with, with Leonard D. Capernato, whatever his name is, uh, and then of course there's yeah. Ghost and The Matrix, and there's all sorts. But the uh, the movie Inception is basically about different levels of dreams, and all those dreams right. look pretty real to me. But one of the things that we we uh, talked about, and I, and with with Hillary, was that reality is really something. One way to describe reality, to define it, is something people agree upon. Uh, and what I got out of your story, where you met up with another. Um, member of the of the of the session is it really shows the unity of mind it really shows that there is that that there is this oneness and you know you're exactly right you know we tend to think oh it's just an illusion it's just a dream it's just this that and the other well it's actually more than that because it's also probably real that's another way to put it because now you've got Two people, at least, experiencing the same thing, it it has to be it has to be a real part of our world. That's that's where I that's where I go with this, and I think that you know we are taught from such a young age that all this stuff is fantasy, and it's and it's pounded into our brains, uh, the the you know the concept of materialism, that we tend to sh- you know shun these things off to the side. Uh, but more and more, when we encounter them firsthand, the the reality of the experience cannot be denied. So I think that that is uh, that that was it was really well done. It reminded me of Dean Radin's uh, experience. Uh, I'm sorry, experiments. Dean Radin being the psychic researcher, where he, where he among other people look for sort of the uh, the the differences in in impact upon the physical world when more than one person is is experiencing it there's also you know these these efforts to um, to measure the psychokinetic effect when there is a group of people all having the same intention all this kind of stuff it sort of goes in the same direction but it, it's 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 extremely interesting now i want to move to something that is is really that that goes that is is woven throughout your book that I think a lot of people um, have thought about that is extremely important, and that is uh, this whole notion of the kingdom of heaven and what it what it means because I think that 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 is one notion that we all have in the back of our minds and we're sort of brought up for those of us raised uh, in organized religion, including me. We you know we're sort of brought up with with uh, what heaven, the kingdom of heaven is. Can you talk a little bit about how your conception of the kingdom of heaven has changed 
from, yeah. from, 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 from the beginning to what it is now? And I, it's a big question, so we may have to break it into pieces, but I think that this is extremely important because this sort of shows the transition, I think, that that you made and that we're all making away from the old pers- perspective to, to sort of a newer perspective. So, Paul, why don't you why don't you talk about th- the old perspective of of the kingdom of heaven and how your perspective has changed? Sure. Uh, the, the traditional talk about the kingdom of heaven as it's conceived, been conceived for centuries, and particularly in the Christian tradition. And, and uh, by the way, my my comments are going to be primarily related to the the Christian tradition because that's the one I'm most familiar with, and I don't want anybody to think that uh, um, that I'm limiting it only to that. It's just that, that I just don't know that much beyond it. Uh, so, right. anyway, in, from traditional Christianity, you know, it's been set up that uh, the kingdom of heaven is an after death reality. You know that, and that usually it's thought of that when we die, we have one of two places we're going to end up. One is either hell, because we screwed up so bad, or we didn't say the right words, or we didn't accept Jesus into our heart, or whatever. And the other, of course, is um, this pristine uh, life on, in the clouds, uh, angels' wings, etc., that's going to be um, heaven as we enter through the pearly gates. And, of course, the criteria for whether we re- reach those or not that place or not, it depends on what religion you're a part of and what tradition. You know, if you're in the Catholic tradition, it's, you know, have you kept the sacraments? If you're in the fundamentalist tradition, have you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? If you're a Presbyterian, for the most part, you know, have you led a pretty good life? Do your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, etc.? Um, but I, I really think that um, if we look at the experience that uh, even the biblical characters very often went through. It was this encounter with something that was beyond their present understanding. Uh, they and what what usually happens with this is that it, it's so far beyond present understanding that language itself doesn't can't even begin to capture it. And so, uh, oftentimes, people who have these kinds of encounters find it very very difficult, if not impossible to communicate to others what they've experienced, because the language doesn't, yep. just simply fails them. And so uh, I think that this kingdom of heaven is this this expansion beyond our uh, knee-jerk preoccupation with uh, the brain and our, our perception of the physical world, so that when we start to expand beyond that, it's really a matter of consciousness as opposed to something that happens to us after death, so that we have access before death to these very these ranges of experience and ranges of consciousness that, for the most part, uh, our society is largely ignorant of. Uh, not because it's anybody's fault, it's just that we simply haven't been trained to notice it and to uh, even begin to access it. So, for me, it's a present reality as opposed to something that's going to happen to us after, after we die. This is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Paul Rademacher. We're talking about the differing perspectives of the kingdom of heaven. Now, Paul is the author of the book, A Spiritual Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, and he's also the publisher of a new magazine called Inner Story, which we're going to talk about in a second here. 
but on this kingdom of heaven, I think that that you know, you are you put your your finger on it uh, because we are we are raised to think you've got to go somewhere else in another world, and the the classic uh, picture is a place above the sky. In, in a different realm, it's above us. You know the famous drawing of Michelangelo. Everyone thinks that it's a that it's in in three dimensional space somewhere. And then of course you probe the outer limbs of the universe, and there's no heaven up there. So, but but then but then you as as far as we could tell. But then you know you go back and you read the words of the of of uh, Jesus Christ or the or the Gospels. And I think in my own book, I think I quote my book, The Collapse of Materialism, I quote the Gospel of Thomas where I think Jesus is, is, is uh, says something like, you know, the kingdom of heaven is all around you, but people don't realize it or something like that. Uh, you know, it's the, same, it's the same basic thing. And frankly, Paul, in my opinion, unless we appreciate that the kingdom of heaven is here or can be here, we're never really going to get where we need to be. Because we can't, you know, we can't, and I'm talking about get where we need to be as a society, not not just as spiritual creatures. But, you know, we have to take responsibility here and now. And I think that what what is going on, and I saw this in your book, is that we're, we're, we're going back and reading the old stories with a different mindset. Is, is this something, I mean, for example, another point that I would, you know, have for you is, you know, have, or another question would be, um, how, how has your, your, um, picture of the Bible changed over time, or Jesus Christ? I mean, I, I take it you, you've evolved your, and deepened your understanding of what this book is about through your, through your, yeah, I, when I, uh, first uh, came into the Christian tradition as an adult. It actually was through a, a very fundamentalist uh, church, and one of the hallmarks of fundamentalism is this idea that the Bible is, is inerrant, and I bought into that for a while. But yeah. then when I went to seminary, they kind of opened me up to another other ways of looking at it. So then I, I think I, I began to look at it more as a, an ongoing conversation. Of, of people who've had these experiences that go beyond language and and then have have tried to uh, understand what the impact of that, what are the implications of that. And I think that when, if you kind of look at the, the Bible through that lens, then it becomes a much more interesting document as opposed to various prescriptions for how we should live. But an ongoing conversation of, of what is the nature of this relationship of humanity, to whatever concept of the divine you might want to have. And, and for me, uh, that completely throws out any notions of in- inerrancy, because the, the nature of a conversation is that it's always ongoing. Right. And, and when, you, when you can approach it from that perspective, then you're in a position then to say, hey, wait a minute, that conversation, I'm a part of that conversation right now. So it isn't like, I, you know, the, the, the way of... of Religion is trapped forever within the pages of a book, but it's being continually renewed every moment of every day. Yeah, I think that that is that is exactly where I'm at because I've I've come to the conclusion, and I I did an article on this that you know the Bible 
we could, we could we could know certain things for certain. Number one, the Bible was written in history. It was written by people. Okay, we know that. And those people had a certain understanding of the world they live in and of God. And they and they wrote the story, and that's the story. That story is old. But but at the time, in my opinion, I think that the world was obviously a lot different. I think people were closer to God. I don't think that obviously scientific materialism hadn't taken over the mind, you know, our mind yet, and there was more of a purity to it. But and that's just me talking. But it doesn't mean that those that that's the only story ever told, <laughs> or the only con- as you put it, only conversation you could ever have. And it's something that has gotten us into more religious wars when you think about right. it, because uh, right. you know certain. <laughs> You could summarize the differences between the, th- the three Abrahamic religions very quickly, you know, uh, with regard the, to the Jews and the Christians don't accept uh, Muhammad as being a messenger of God, and then you've got the Jews not accepting Jesus Christ, and then you've got the Christians saying the Messiah's coming. I mean, you've got all these people talking about sort of around and around and around little it'd be these disagreements over the messengers but if you view those works as being written in time and just giving different perspectives it's it's it starts making more sense and i think that the conversation as you point out is so important because you sort of have to have if you have that experience yourself like you did and you put in the words it, it's 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 much more meaningful and also, it gives you that perspective to understand other people. See, I think it. I think right. it gives you. It helps you understand other people. So, what? So, why don't you comment upon what I just said there? Because, because then I want to switch back. I want to ask. I want to ask you about your your new venture with this inner story um, magazine. Sure. Um, I, I think that when when we are able to speak from the perspective of our own personal experience as opposed to speaking from the perspective of having to defend our dogma or defend our particular uh, point of view. That's the nature of experience is you don't have to defend it. You can just say, you know, this is what happened to me. And people can listen to that without uh, having to be defensive. And then, you know, the nature of a conversation is a period of talking and there's also a period of deep listening. So there's the invitation for the other person to tell their story and to and to simply absorb that, and it's a very different form of relationship than trying to prove uh, that you're right or and that somebody else is wrong and that uh, you know you're on God's side and somebody else's isn't. Um, it's a much more gentle and uh, invitational way of relating to people, and I think that that's something we have to learn as a species. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point that when it comes from your own experience there's really nothing to argue about because it is it is a true valid heartfelt uh experience and then you you start talking to other people about their own experiences and i i think that that's really you know we have to find some way to sort to lessen the tension between religions because it's because it becomes uh, you know, it becomes uh, a a uh, revenge factor right now. We are in the the vengeance mode. We have forgotten mm-hmm. about the foundation to religion. That's that's not even a, an issue right now. It, I mean, nobody even talks about 
what the foundation of religions are. They're all they're, they're talking about different sects, and you know, and, and what they believe in. I mean, this whole Islamic, you know, b- battle. I mean, people don't understand this. The Sunnis and the Shiites are basically two branches of Islam. They both honor a different follower of Muhammad. And th- th- that's what separates them. I mean, so we have these 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 uh, battles between what I would consider to be surface issues, uh, ignoring the the power of the underlying uh, the unity here. But that's that's a big topic. But I just want to throw that in there. Now, you you do something a little different, and this is going to be the segue to inner story, just to give you to put you on notice here. Is that you? You don't um, disparage the ego or the individual like some, mis- like many mystical uh, writers. Why? Why is that? Wh- what do you see in the ego or the individual that is that is essential for us? Well, I think that we have to understand that that there is this individualized sense of self that we usually call the ego is in a process of development. Um, you know, they, I think we're moving uh, from uh, a, a group mind that was pretty dominant uh, for much of history. We, we're now moving into a place where that is increasingly the individualized sense of self is becoming the predominant way in which we interface with the world. But we we fail to realize that, that this individualized sense of self is in the process of growing into something else beyond what it is right now. I, I kind of liken it to uh, the what our conception of the ego right now is, is actually it's sort of a, in its teenage years. It's very narcissistic. It's very um, unsure of itself. It uh, is always seeking for approval. It, it wants at one time to um, be different from everybody else, but it's terrified also at the same time of being separate from the group. So uh, the individualized ego is going to grow into something beyond that. I think this is an experiment that we're we're going through right now in terms of human development. And we're going to be moving into a time where the ego starts to mature into something new. And that maturity has very much to do with a softening of the boundaries uh, of, of this individualized sense of self. It has very much to do with a sense of renewed relationship and connection to the world around. Right now, we're in a phase where, you know, we're pretty much separated from the world around us by the boundary of our skin for most people. And that is going to change uh, over time. We're going to retain, I think, to some extent, this this uh, unique perspective that is what it means to be within this human body, but it's going to, uh, our sense of that and our consciousness of that is going to go through some radical changes. And that's going to, I think that that's going to, this next step in evolution is going to make a big impact in terms of, of how we relate to one another, how we relate to the planet, and also how we see ourselves within the universe. Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, the way I've, I've put it recently is that we, that individuation or individuality is essential but you have to carry the mind the big mindset though and you can't carry the small mind with the small with the big ego you got to have and I don't care how big your ego is as long as you have the big mind in other words realizing that we're part of the whole that when you have those 
experiences like you had at the Monroe Institute where you join up with somebody else taking the class or going through the session. I mean, there to me, you are sort of immersed in the big mind, so to speak, and that's an experience that you cannot ignore. Now, can you just tell the listeners before we end here a little bit about your new venture, um, the the Inner Story magazine, and what that is about, and how folks could find out more about uh, about that? Yeah, Inner Story magazine was uh, something that that came to me. I, I I've always had a I've always been kind of a storyteller, and I've noticed that when other people stel- tell stories, I I tend to pay attention and. And I think it's part of our, um, it's almost like a childlike uh, thing that when we hear a story begin, we automatically want to know where it's going to go, and yeah. we want to know how it's going to end up. We almost can't help ourselves. And so I found that, that story is a really great way to engage people because of this inborn curiosity. And so often we approach the issues of spirituality and consciousness from um, a scientific perspective, uh, or we want to try to prove something or whatever. And uh, I've noticed that what happens when you do that is you just end up getting into these continual arguments back and forth. What's well, this? No, it's not. You know, it's right. so on and so forth. But when when you go through the vehicle of story, there is this kind of s- sense of settling around a campfire. And, you know, hey, what happened to you? Oh, yeah, that, you know, that brings up a story. I remember this happened to me. So now you're at a, you're at a level of conversation that is very different from the confrontational uh, conversation that is actually a manifestation of the ego as we now know it, which is I'm going to prove that you're right that I'm right and you're wrong. And we can let go of that and enter into this different place of being that is much more involved with relationships. So Inner Story Magazine is what we're trying to do is to highlight this aspect of personal story. To, to broaden the conversation into something that's uh, much more conducive and respectful and relational. Yeah, I think that, that is a, that's an excellent point that the, the story somehow teaches better than a lecture in many instances. And I think mm-hmm. that that's something that I took to heart as well uh, when, I, when I read about uh, that in your book, and I also s- would compliment you, you know, your book itself has a lot of really good stories in it. So we've quickly come to the end, and once again, uh, I, want to, I want to tell the listeners that this book, I want to you know, emphasize, uh, Paul's book, A Spiritual Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, is, a, is, is itself a very compelling story with a lot of subplots in it, um, and it, it brings you from, you know, the uh, construction worker mindset to the Monroe Institute and beyond it's a and it's a really good read in terms of bringing this all together to me at the end of the day what this means is that we need to change our perspective Uh, we need to change our mindset we need to begin with the personal experience and then interpret the world and in order to do that you sort of have to clean the rubbish out the debris out you have to you have to begin with this with this child's mind and then build it up from there. It's something not easy to do, but through I think whether it's meditation, whether it's critical examination of your beliefs, whether it's reading a bunch of books from people who do this kind of thing, like Paul Rademacher, I think that's really where we need to go. We need to clean the slate a little bit and change our perspective. 
Uh, Paul, thank you very much. Uh, it's been really uh, a lot of fun talking with you, and I wish you the best of luck with your new venture, Inner Story. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.